can be seated this morning. That is good news, isn't it? You know, as we pray this morning, I want to encourage you to come forward if you'd like to pray here with me at the front. But, uh, you know, it says in Acts chapter 13 um, that there was a very important moment in the life of the church in Acts 13 and 14. It was the moment in which the church began to flourish and grow. In fact, the church in Antioch sent out two individuals, and there was a synergy, if you will, of the Holy Spirit working in the church and the people who were gathered that particular morning and were praying and fasting. And tells us there at the end of, or at the beginning of rather of chapter 13 of Acts, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit of God said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And it says, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And it's there that we see the uh, movement of Christianity exploding across that particular region. And God began to move when his people were praying and they were fasting and they were worshiping and they were in one accord with each other. We were praying this past week and we kind of come to an end of praying our specific intentional time of praying for uh, our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We're giving towards that and I pray and hope you'll give sacrificially to that. But we're praying specifically for God to move, not just internationally as we typically pray, but also here locally in North America. And oh, our country needs the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? And in all of North America, Canada, our, the United States, we need Christ followers to continue to grow and the kingdom of God to continue to expand. And so uh, we are praying this morning for over 3,500 missionaries that are serving around the world. That's through our International Mission Board. But also in our North American Mission Board, there are 2,400 families, individuals that we're praying for this morning. And so I just want you to gather together with me this morning and let's pray. Let's ask God to, uh, to anoint them, to use them, to bless them in these days, okay? So let's pray together. And Father, we thank you this morning that we can sing beautiful music to you. And it isn't about our voices, it isn't about the way in which we sing per se. Lord, we know that God, you are honored and glorified when we sing from our hearts. And you certainly look into our hearts today. We thank you that you have a knowledge that is limitless. You have, Lord, a uh, power that we don't understand or understand or imagine. God, you are everywhere at all times. You see as no one else sees. You love as no one else loves. In fact, we don't even know what love is apart from you. God, we worship you today. Thank you for the songs we've been able to sing, the time that we've been able to pray, the fellowship we've already benefited from and been blessed with. God, above all things, we're spiritual people. And you have poured your Holy Spirit into our hearts and in our lives. That's what unites us in this room. And for those of us, God, who have given our hearts to you, Jesus, and are following you wholeheartedly with our lives, we have this incredible unity that is found, Lord, not in ourselves. It isn't in our um, differences or in our similarities or in our preferences, but it is found in you, Lord. You're the one who unites us, so we thank you for that. Well, Lord, we come from all walks of life. We come from different generations. 
We're used to certain things, and some of us aren't used to anything. We come to the church for the very first time in our lives. We, what we experience from the church is what we see and experience, Lord, just in recent weeks or months or years since we've given our lives to you. But we collectively tell you this morning in all of our differences that we love you, and we thank you for your time, the time that, God, you are devoting to us. For, Lord, your presence is here with us. You are in control of all things in the world. You hold our world together. You hold the earth together. You hold all of the universe together. All that, that is called your creation, you hold it together, Lord, in somehow, some way. Lord, we can talk to you and you hear us and you listen to us and you act upon the prayers of your people as we saw here in Acts 13. God, you moved and you were moved with power there in Antioch. Move with power here at Central in Livingston. God, we thank you this morning for the 3,500 plus families and individuals serving you around the world in far off places and far reaching corners of our world. Simply there, Lord, not because they're on a sightseeing tour, but because they want to take the good news of Jesus Christ, your son, into places that are so spiritually dark in the world. We also thank you for the 2,400 missionary families and individuals, Lord, serving you across North America as chaplains in military bases, as college campus ministers trying to reach and talk to individual college students over a cup of coffee or pastors and church planters planting churches in all kinds of different contexts and places all across our country. God, we thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for their faith. For Lord, they sat in churches like ours in pews and in chairs and in seats and they went on mission trips and they taught Bible study classes and at some point, some time in their lives, you impressed upon their hearts and their lives, Lord, to give their life for ministry. And so they did and they accepted or they, they answered that call upon, your, upon their lives by way of your Holy Spirit to explore that and to say, God, we, we want to follow you with the rest of our lives and we want to we follow you in the places that you send us. And they did, and Lord, they, they followed you. So we pray for them, God, as the church in Antioch prayed for Barnabas and, and Saul. And we pray for confidence in your word, that they would be confident in the things that they teach and the confident in the things that they're preaching and the things that they're counseling with. Lord, that they have your word and it is what is worthy of being confident in, the truth. We also pray for a filling of your Holy Spirit. God, we know that they go not alone, not abandoned, not isolated, but they have you. But Lord, we just pray for a special anointing and filling of your Holy Spirit to empower their work, to empower these churches to survive and to continue to reach new disciples, to continue to reach our college campuses, to continue to reach our military personnel serving you all over the world, but specifically among military bases here as chaplains. God, we pray for those who are working and moving in these spaces where you are and where you want them to be. God, that you would empower them by way of your Holy Spirit. And then God, give them victory. Victory over the spiritual warfare that no doubt they will incur and some of them are facing and experiencing right now. The discouragement and the doubt, the frustration, the worry. God, just would you surround them with your angels? Would you remind them of the spiritual arsenal that you give them, the things that God, you have given them from your word that you give to us? 
God, would you give them everything that they need in order to be the men and women you've called them to be in the places that you want them to serve? God, would you, would you help them to understand that they already have the victory? Just as the people of God entered Canaan with victory, so, Lord, they have victory, so we have victory over our lives, and we thank you for that. God, remind them of that this morning. And then in these days, would you be with our church? Help us to be faithful to pray. Help us to be faithful to give as we're giving this week. To invest in something that is eternal. Something that matters. Something that will last for eternity. The lives of people being transformed and rescued out of hell and put into heaven. God, you do that work, but you do that by way of our faithfulness, our prayer, our willingness to give, but also, Lord, our willingness to go. And so, Lord, would you put before us opportunities, and when we have those opportunities, God, that we would embrace those opportunities. God, that's what you've called us to do, to work alongside people, to do things for the very first time, Lord, to go and do ministry, God, because that's what you've called us to do and to be. You've given us a holy mission, and you've rescued us from our hearts and our lives, and where our hearts and our lives even have taken us, God. We have followed our human wisdom so many times and in so many places, and you've rescued us out of that, and you've called us to be rescuers of other people. And so, God, would you do that and be with us in these days as a church? So we give this, this holy mission to you and enable us, God, to carry it out. But we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word, and God, as we turn to your word now, God, open our hearts and our eyes, our ears, and give us faith to believe and to respond. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning once again. I want to encourage you to take a Bible with me and turn over to the book of Joshua, where it's where we're going to be, of course, on every Sunday morning these days. We are in Joshua chapter 10. Hey, listen, there was a movie many years ago um, that uh, was titled The Longest Day. Maybe some of you have remembered it. If you're young, you don't remember it because it was before your time. But it is shown from time to time. It was before my time, but it is shown from time to time. But it had to do with D-Day, the invasion of Normandy during the World War II era. Um, it was called The Longest Day. It was a movie that was interesting and it was fascinating because it was from the perspective of the German forces, not the Allied forces. It was from the entire movie, most, entire, most of the entire movie had to do with dialogue that was taking place not in the, among the Allies coming and invading Normandy, but those who were entrenched, the German forces and German troops who were entrenched. The thing about Germany was this. They knew that that invasion was coming. They just didn't know when it was, and so they prepared for it, and they planned for it, and they did all of those kinds of things. And so the movie really focuses on the German preparation for that and German perspective for that. But the movie obviously ends with this understanding of a crushing defeat that took place in Germany. And the tide began to turn, of course, in Europe as the Allied forces continued to march into Europe to liberate all of Europe from German occupation. It was a fascinating kind of movie, fascinating kind of story, but it had to do with that particular day, the day of the invasion of D-Day, of, of Normandy, and how it felt like a, such a long day. It felt like it would never end, and that's why the movie's called The Longest Day. Hey, listen, in Joshua chapter 10, we're going to see the longest day ever recorded in history on the earth. 
And God's going to do something amazing here in Joshua chapter 10 if you've never read it before. What happens here is not something that's filmed in Hollywood. It is something that God does in a supernatural, powerful way because God does something amazing for his people here. And we're going to walk through it together in the story this morning. It's a story of how God steps in again and he fights for his people. He fights for his people. It's the longest day the earth has ever seen. Now let me, let me just kind of bring us up to speed because if you've never been here on a Sunday morning before, Maybe you've watched online and you chose to check us out here on a Sunday morning in person. We're glad you're here. But let me just bring us up to speed as to where we are in the story. You know that God's people are coming into Canaan. God's already given them the promised land. It's a matter they just have to exercise obedient faith. And they have to continue to do things God's way, listen to him, consult with him, uh, follow his way. And when, you fo- when they followed his way, things went well for them. But when they got off track, as we've seen a couple times already in the story, then things went really bad for them. And so they tried to, you know, do things their way a couple of times, but it didn't work out so well. And so at the same time, when they got themselves back on track and they chose to exercise obedient faith and they repented of their sins and so forth, God then blessed them again and they moved forward. We've seen these two major victories already in Canaan between God's people and Jericho and then God's people in Ai, two city-states that they have taken over up until this point. We also saw a week ago a major mistake that they made. The major mistake that they made, of course, when they failed was that their leaders, Joshua included in this story in chapter 9, failed to consult the Lord, and then they got tricked. They got the end around by a city-state that realized that, hey, listen, we're in Canaan, but we can't defeat Israel and God. Who can defeat that, right? We, we can't defeat God, and we can't defeat, you know, God's people, so let's do this. Let's come up with a story. Let's, let's come up with a good script. Let's, let's come up with a Hollywood script in order to somehow figure out a way to trick Israel. And so they did. They laid it on thick. They dressed up, they, uh, the part, and they acted, they, they carried old stuff with them, they acted really hungry, and maybe they walked up to Joshua and their bellies were growling because they'd not eaten, or maybe they were fasting for a couple days, and like, we, do, we need to really like pour it on thick, and guess what, it worked. And they go back, the Gibeonites, and they're high-fiving each other, right? And all of a sudden, what they realize, what Joshua and, his pe- and the people of God realize is that they have entered into this peace treaty with this nation, city, state, that they did not realize was in the territory that God had said, destroy. They had pretended to be outside of Canaan, and so they wanted this peace treaty. God's people entered into this peace treaty with them, and and that's where we stand. And so in the midst of all of this, they choose in chapter 9, God's people, to honor God and not sin against him, even in the wake of their consequences to their sinful acts to begin with. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 14, you see there, that's the crux. That's the, that's the tipping point, if you will. God's people, the leaders of God's people didn't go to God and consult. God would have given them the discernment to say, you know what? You ought to check this. You ought to think about this. These are people that are faking it. They're not outside the promised land. They're just down the road from you. But they didn't consult. They acted in their own human wisdom. They followed their heart. It led them in the bad place. Then now what? Now we have to, or they had to follow through with whatever they were, consequences that ensued because of that poor decision. So now what? Okay, let's make the choice that even in the midst of sinful consequences, we're going to honor God. Church, that's where we are. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Then what? How do we navigate through our sinful past? How do we make mistakes in our life and try to right those mistakes and then move forward? There's always going to be those consequences to sin. 
And we just have to choose to trust God. We have to choose to honor God even in the midst of that. And that's what God's people do coming out of chapter 9, coming into chapter 10. But check this out in chapter 10. Is it doesn't take long before that alliance, if you will, that peace treaty between the Gibeonites and God's people is now going to be tested. And it shows up right here in chapter 10. When you go with when you go it alone, God's, or go it alone on your own terms, it's going to be disastrous. But, but here in chapter 10, we see that what life is like when the Lord is with us, even in the wake of those consequences. So when you choose to honor God, listen, in the wake of those sinful consequences, what I want to encourage you with this morning, and we're going to see this here in this story, God fights for his people. When you honor him in the wake of your sinful consequences, God honors or fights for his people, he delivers you from the penalty even of sin and the damaging effects sometimes of even sin. But I want you to see something in just a moment as we walk through the story, that it's all tied to his presence in your life. We sang this morning songs about the presence of God. We are here in the presence of God. When we gather together as God's people, God's presence is here with us. And we want to see that manifested in our life, right? We want to see the Spirit of God manifest that in our hearts and in our homes and in our families and in our individual lives, right? In, the, in, in turn of following Him and turning away from things and in following Him and honoring Him with our life. But when we choose to do that, God fights for His people even in the wake of your sinful past. Check out the story with me. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 10. Open your Bibles. I hope you have them open with me this morning, but you see the story there. I'm just going to summarize the story. We're going to walk through this story together, and I'm going to summarize it for us and, and come back to what God is, wants us to see out of it. There is this reaction. When God's people enter into this peace treaty with the Gibeonites, their neighbors with other city-states, and so there is a going to be a reaction. In fact, the reaction, the first reaction we see that shows up in verse 1, and it's the reaction there, you see it in verse 1, of the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, who was the king of Jerusalem at the time, hears of Joshua had captured Ai, had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among, look at, look at verse 2, flip it over, them, okay, there you go. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and its men were warriors. You understand what's happening here. The king of Jerusalem sees it and understands that, that there is this holy, or this, this alliance that has been developed between God's people and the Gibeonites, and he somewhat panics. What had happened was God's people had come into the Canaan, and they had split it in half. They ran through the middle of Canaan, so the southern, king, southern Canaan and northern Canaan was now in two particular specific regions. And so when the king of Jerusalem hears of this, it says there in verse 2, look at verse 2, he was greatly what? Afraid. He feared greatly. And so Ai was larger than, or rather Gibeon was larger than Ai. God's people had taken it out. It was a royal city, and all the men in Gibeon were warriors. You've got to understand that the Canaan is not like the United States. In other words, if someone invaded, or if another nation invaded Louisiana, I can guarantee you this, Texans would be up in arms about it. We would be on, we would be all, all forces would be going into Louisiana, wouldn't we? 
That's not how it was here in Canaan. You've got to understand, Canaan is a region, it's a territory, and it's got multiple city-states. They're all independent from one another. They're not together on anything. But you see this here when it comes to understanding that God's people are invading these city-states and they're taking them out one by one because God has already given them to him. When the king of Jerusalem hears about it, he develops this alliance. Verse 3, four other kings. He goes to four other kings and he develops this alliance and collectively they are the Ammonites. But watch this, because instead of marching towards Israel, they march against Gibeon. Now Gibeon is now their enemy. And so they start to march against Gibeon. That's the first five verses of the story. Look at verse six. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal. Here's how this alliance is going to be tested between Gibeon and God's people. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up, as quick, come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Ammonites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Gibeon hears about this alliance. He hears about, they hear about, that these five city-states have all come together and they are moving towards Gibeon to attack Gibeon. And so they cash in on that peace treaty with Israel and God. And so they send word to Joshua, they send word to God's people, Israel, come help us, right? And so what, do, what happens? So look at verse 7. So Joshua went up to Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with the great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the, by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda, a Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. There are two th big things I want you to see in the story that we need to remember and hold on to. Think in terms of what's happening here. What God does is he inserts himself into the story. Remember, God is fighting for his people. And so God shows up in two big ways. First of all, he speaks to Joshua, doesn't he? I mean, look at back at verse 9 with me. I'm sorry, verse 8 with me. And the Lord says to Joshua, don't fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. He steps into their sp in that space and he reassures Joshua. He, he gives them a constant faithfulness that he's going to come to their aid all the way to the end. That's verse 8. But he didn't just speak. He fights for Israel. That's what verse 10 and 11 and on into verse 12 is all about. Lord throws them into a panic. He does this. He does all of this work. But then in verse 12 and 13, we're going to see, guess what? The sun stop. Now watch this. This is what God does. Not only does he speak, but he fights, and he fights in three miraculous ways. Don't miss the detail here back in verse 9. It says, So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. That's a three-day journey. But God somehow miraculously moves the men of Israel and fight in, in, in that way to, to travel all night long, a three-day journey all the way from where they're camped to Gibeon. That's number one. Number two, what, what, what happens here? Hailstones come from heaven. Hailstones come from the sky, right? 
And not only do they kill a few of the men, it says at the end of verse 11 that there were more who died because of the hailstones. That's God himself than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God did more in defeating the enemies than the people of Israel did in that way. But watch this, and this is the power of prayer. Watch verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave to the Ammonites Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, and this is, this is what Joshua says, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon, valley of Aijalon, Verse 13, and the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Now watch this. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. And there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man for the Lord fought for Israel. And so Joshua returned and all Israel with him to camp at Gilgal. Not only did he enable them to get there all night long quickly, not only did he throw the people of uh, these five kings and their entire army into panic and hailstones come from heaven, but as Joshua prayed, he made the day long, longer. The sun stopped so that they could bring about the victory. No day like it before, no day like it since. We don't like that time change. But how about a day where the sun stands still? We'll say, well, that's impossible. Is it possible for the Red Sea to split apart? Is it possible for the Jordan River to split apart? Is it possible for Jesus to take a little lunch and pray to God and he multiplies and feeds thousands with it? Is it possible for Jesus to heal a blind man or a man who is, uh, who is leprous? Can he bring about the He opened his ears and bring about healing to his ears so that he can hear for the first time. Folks, we serve and we worship a miraculous God who does these things. That defies science, that defies these moments when we think that does not logically make sense. That's the whole point in order to bring you and I and to get our attention on him. Because he's the one who created you and brought you and I into this world. He sets the rules He gives me the ability to live out this life. He comes into my heart. He saves me from my past sins. He comes into my life and he renews me. He gives me new reason, new purpose. I woke up this morning fresh and new. Yes, I lost an hour of sleep. Actually, I didn't. I went to bed early, but here's the thing. I woke up in a good place. Why? Because I looked towards the future. I looked towards the next few hours and I said, God, you've given me purpose. You've given me meaning. You've given me direction. I want to do it and use that time for the best of my abilities. God does that work. I can't manufacture that. God does this work here on this particular day for God's people. The rest of the story is very simple. Because after that event, who's going to defeat God? Who's going to defeat God's people? The army, of course, is defeated in the next several verses. The five kings are found, they're executed, and they move forward. You see, here's the thing. Israel does all this for a people they were supposed to destroy, the Gibeonites. Why? They're supposed to be destroying the Gibeonites. Their cities were to be laid waste. Their people were to be destroyed, all of it. And yet here are the holy warriors of Israel coming to the aid of a people that they were supposed to kill. Why? 
because they're trying to honor God in the wake of their sinful consequences that they have to live out. But I want you to see, and don't miss the detail here, because in the midst of God's people carrying out God's will by honoring him in the wake of their sinful consequences and these consequences, he doesn't abandon them. Instead, he speaks and he fights for them. He fights for Israel. He fights for his people. Folks, that's what God does. When we choose to honor him with our lives, he fights us for us. And he delivers us, even sometimes from the penalties, from the consequences that we have to live out, even from the, the penalties sometimes of sin and the details in our lives. And the victory is all tied to his presence. He's all over this story. This isn't man-made. This isn't men-focused. This isn't man-centered. This is about God showing up and fighting for his people. I want you to think about something for a moment. You can't change the past you can't change what happened a week ago, or you can't change what happened in your life 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 40 years ago. You can't change those things. I wish I could. I, don't you wish you could? You, you, you can't change that relationship that, you, you, that, that maybe you were complicit in and that you were part of that, that is now ruined. Or that person by way of chance in the sense of the decisions that you made, the ways that you lived your life has now pushed that person away from God forever. I wish I could change that. I wish I could go to that person and say, I'm a completely different person now. You don't, don't, don't. What I did to you 20 years ago, don't let that get between you and the Lord, but sometimes it's not. And listen, there are people in my life that, that may never spend eternity in heaven because of the decisions that I made 20 years ago, 30 years ago, early on in my life because of the mistakes that I made or a word that I spoke. I wish I could take those things back, and I can't. I wish I could step in and, and get a hold of those people, but I can't. I wish I could take back those moments in my life where I, my temper exploded on someone and I lost my temper and I said something, I did something, or my attitude shifted from being this kind, nice person to all of a sudden berating someone. I wish I could take it back. I wish I could take back that period of my life where I didn't walk with Christ. Don't you wish you could take that moment back? Those years in my life, those two or three years in my life, four years in my life that I didn't really walk closely with the Lord, but I walked half with God and half in the world. And I thought they could coincide, and I thought I could live that parallel walk, but I couldn't. And God convicted me and brought me back to himself. I wish I could take back that season, but I can't. So what am I to do with it? How am I to live with that? Do I walk around with my head between my legs, staring at the floor, depressed and discouraged. I've got to deal with it. I've got to confess and repent and try to make those things right as best I can. But then I've got to move on with my life. I've got to honor God in the midst of it. I've got to rest in, within the grace of God. I've got to rest in the grace of God and what he's doing in my life now. What he's taught me from the past and how I'm not defined by my failures, I'm now defined by who I am now and where I'm going into the future. And the Apostle Paul spoke of this. Think in terms of, of his life and all that the Apostle Paul did. I mean, he was on the front end of dragging people out of homes, moms and dads who were following Jesus with their life and throwing them into prison. This, is, this was the Apostle Paul. It, it tells us the first martyr of the faith who is there, Stephen, who's 
when, when he's there and being stoned to death by people, there is Saul, this young man Saul, who is giving the green light for it to happen as they laid their cloaks at his feet. He's watching for the first time a man get completely beaten to death. How do you live with something like that? You see, the Apostle Paul understood it, he knew in his own heart that God had redeemed him of his past sin, had radically changed his life, and he was moving forward in light of the grace of God that had been poured over his life and within his life. And he, he pins this part of this to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. I love this portion of God's word in Philippians 3. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead, is, that's all future. He's saying it's coming in the future for me. We have this resurrection from the dead. This is not our best life. This is, we're sojourning, we're transform, we're moving through this life from, from birth to birth to then eternal life, right? And he's saying, listen, the best part of, the, of, of our eternal life is if it's eternal, that it's coming in the future, that the Spirit of God has changed us, he's radically changed us. But watch what he says or listen to what he says. Philippians 3.12, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on and make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God of Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature, and we ought to be mature, think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what is that we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, here's the deal. Paul understood he'd made a wreck of his life. And if you carved out just those few years early on in his life and you said, well, tell me about Saul, he'd give you a laundry list of all the ways that he had he'd followed the world, he'd followed his own heart, he'd followed his intellect. I mean, he was an incredibly intelligent person. If you looked at his life then, and you lived around his life then, maybe you would think, that's the guy I remember, but that's not the guy who he was now. And his focus was about keeping his eyes upon the prize and straining toward the future and living in light of the grace and the mercy of God. Listen, church, that's what we've got to do. Paul's mind was pressing into the cross. He was a man who had been bought and paid for. He was a man who the cross of Jesus Christ had transformed his life, had changed his life. What Jesus did on the cross had changed forever, changed him. And I want to encourage you and I this morning that when you embrace the cross, it helps you to deal with the past. When you embrace the cross of Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross and from the grave, 
It enables you to deal with the things you did last week or the things that you did 30 years ago or the things you did 10 years ago. It puts in perspective who you were and who you are now and where you are going and where God wants you to continue to go. Paul's mind was on the cross. It helps you to deal with and through the consequences even of sin. And he gives you and reminds you of this assurance that he's fighting for you, that he's for you. So how does God tangibly fight for us? I mean, that's the big picture. God's fighting for us. How is he doing this? I'll tell you how he does it. He invades your life with his presence. He invades your life with his presence. In the Old Testament, under the Old Testament covenant, oftentimes we would see, as we see here in Joshua chapter 10, God shows up on the battlefield. God does these big and miraculous things, and he shows up by way of his Holy Spirit and he, in his presence. He shows up and he does these big things, hailstones coming down from heaven, the sun standing still, uh, uh, getting the army there on a three-day's journey there in one day. He does these miraculous things, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, moving into the Jordan River and the people of God are to stand back and watch and as the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God moves into the water and the priests step into the water, all of a sudden the waters begin to part. He does these, does these tangible, visible, big things for his people and then he says, I don't want you to forget it. I want you to set up stones and I want you to set up these markers to remember my greatness. Remember when I show up. Remember when I step in and fight for you. But I want to remind us this morning that in the New Testament, under the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his presence, it is all on full display in your life. When you step from this life and following your heart and following your emotions and following your feelings and continuing to go down your way and you choose to follow him with your life and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you confess and you repent of your sin, guess what happens? The Spirit of God comes into your life. I love 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. It says, greater is he who is in you than what? He who is in the world. That's right, he, he creates for us, and John reminds us there in that one little verse that there is this, these two forces that are at work. There is the force that is continuing to pull you away from the Lord, and then there is the force that lives not outside of your life, not outside of your body, not outside of your mind, but lives within you, dwells within you, in your heart. There is no tabernacle that we break down and we set up. There is no priest that has to go in there and offer offerings and kill all these animals and throw blood in an offering. It doesn't happen anymore. Jesus Christ is what? He is our sacrifice. And when I embrace his work, the spirit of God comes into my life. He indwells my heart. He indwells my life. What a beautiful picture. He invades your life so that I can live for him, that I could have that spiritual victory. But he doesn't just invade our life. He provides this spiritual arsenal for us and in our life, right? I grew up around the military in Virginia, Southeast Virginia. When I went to high school and middle school and the more formative years of my life, I was around the military a lot. There in Southeast Virginia, the economy is driven by the military. Some of you have served in the military and were stationed at bases there. There is a particular base there called the Naval Weapons Station. It's in Yorktown. It's been there for over 100 years. And it, it continues to supply, and for years and decades, it has continued to supply the U.S. Atlantic fleet, or U.S. military. Over 118,000 sailors, 186 ships that are stationed in that particular region, over 1,300 aircraft that land on these aircraft carriers and so forth. 
this one particular base does this work, what I want to remind you of is that the Lord has set in our lives this incredible arsenal, this incredible way in which he provides for us what we need in order to fight these spiritual battles within our lives. We're familiar there with Ephesians chapter 6. Paul reminds the church in Ephesus of that spiritual arsenal. Verse 10, we need to understand this as Christians because we live in a hostile world. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, that's all great, Paul. How do I do that, right? That's like saying, here, do better. But then he goes on to explain what he means. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this, pres- this, this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that, by the way, is there that you don't have to earn, that you don't have to work for. It's already been provided for us that you may be able to withstand in the evil day day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for the uh, for your feet, having put on the readiness given for the gospel of peace and all circumstances taking up the shield of faith for which you can extinguish the darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints I mean what God has provided for you and I is the spiritual arsenal to fend off the the moments in our life when we experience doubt the, the, the moments in our life when we experience guilt over something that happened 15, 20 years ago, uh, the, 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 to fend off the, and, and going down the wrong road of believing the wrong things about what the Bible says or what have you, God's the one who provides that spiritual arsenal in our life that steps into our life. So he invades our life with his presence. He provides this incredible spiritual arsenal, and then he disarms our enemies, He goes before you and he disarms our enemies in our life. And what unites all of us in this room this morning is this. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserve heaven. None None of us deserve anything God is giving to us. That's why it's called grace. What unites everyone in this room is sin. We're broken. We don't have to tell each other that. We don't have to convince each other of that. No one in this room is going to convince me or stand in front of me and say, no, I'm a perfect person. I've never done anything wrong. But the cross of Christ marks a decisive defeat and blow to demonic powers in your life. You see, when you turn away from that sin, you follow Christ with your life. You follow the better way. You follow the good news of Christ that we've been singing about this morning. And forever, the cross of Christ marks this decisive defeat and blow against these demonic powers in your life. It actually disarms what's happening around you. We sometimes gloss over everything Paul says in that passage in Ephesians to get to the armor. But understand what's going on around you. Understand what's going on around Central this morning. Right now, right here in this space. Around every 
gospel-believing and teaching church that is on this planet. Every individual who's trying to walk with Christ. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, what you can see, but against the rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness. Not future darkness, not past darkness, this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual battle happening right now where you're sitting. Like right now. It's happening with me on this stage. It's happening in our church. It happens when any time God's people step out in faith to try to do things that we don't want to do or hard things or uncomfortable things. Satan loves to get you to a place where you're just on autopilot. He doesn't have to worry about you. But when you start to exercise faith and do the things God wants you to do and exercise obedience to get beyond your feelings and emotions and, 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 and human logic and start to actually follow him, that's when he gets real involved. He will get real involved. He will distract you. He will discourage you. He will cause physical things to happen to you. He will do these things. That's what's happening. And yet... God moves in. He not only invades you with his presence and provides you with that spiritual arsenal, he disarms the enemies because this is what the cross does. It publicly shows the absolute failure of the powers over your life, over the power of Christ to save. He disarms and he defeats. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, Therefore, as we have received Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and In him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands, but putting off the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you, collectively church, were were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven in all trespasses." all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with the legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them all. That's what Jesus did for you. Therefore, and if our students were here and they're on spring break and they're gone, but we got a few here, you can go to school having be a follower of Jesus Christ in a sea of students who are directly opposed to following the Bible and walk into that school with the presence and the power of Jesus, with the spiritual arsenal God's given you, And God has already shown up at that school. No matter you might struggle with or kids struggle with doubt, and you might be alone in that, God has already gone ahead of you and he is disarming the spiritual forces at work in your heart. You can go to work 
or you might be the only Christian, or there may be a bunch of people who call themselves Christian, but they're not pursuing righteousness with their life, but you are. And you walk in with these things that God has provided for you and given to you. That's the beautiful thing about understanding that God fights for you in the wake of the sinful consequences of your life. His victory is tied to his presence in your life. So what am I to do with all of that? I bow my knees to the cross. I yield to it. So that it overcomes and destroys the pride and the the tendency that I have to rely on myself. I yield to the cross. I yield to the work of Christ. And then I acknowledge that God, you've given me this spiritual victory and I rise from that moment in that space picking up the spiritual weaponry that God has given me and the arsenal that he gives me in my life and then I fight. I do battle with what leads to sin. I do battle with what leads to temptations and the temptations in my life. I do battle with the things that my mind tell me. I do battle with the way that the culture is trying to influence me and shape me. I do battle with those things because God has already given me victory over it. And it's not that I'm trying to hang on. It's that I am thriving in the space. That's the victory that we have with Christ. The worry, the doubt, the unhealthy relationships, the anger, the lust, all of it. That's the victory God gives you in Christ. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? You know, as we have a time where we respond to this victory, God fights for you. Maybe this morning, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to sing a song together and worship him. It'd be God speaking to you about burying that guilt from the past, that those issues from the past. You need to bury it and let it go and emerge with a victory that we have through Jesus. You can't undo the consequences. There are going to be relationships that have soured and they may never be united again, even though you continue to try and pray towards that end. All you can do is move forward and press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus. And you honor him with your life. And when you do that, listen, church, when you do that, God fights for you. Just as he did for Israel that day with Gibeon. A nation, city-state they were supposed to destroy. And here's God showing up for his people. Because he loved his people and he loves you. Maybe this morning God wants you to just give over something to him. Asking him to take it, to receive it, and then walk away from it. Maybe God's speaking to you about where you are in your own personal relationship with Christ. And maybe it's time to start following him and pursuing him with a more passionate and wholehearted way. Maybe the Lord's speaking to you about the separation between himself and you. Maybe this morning you've not surrendered your life to him. You can't have this victory, this assurance of salvation, this abundant joy, this promise of eternal life without first and foremost believing in turning to him, saying, I want to follow him. I want to not follow my feelings, not follow my heart. I want to follow him with the rest of my life. You created me. He created you. 
The fact is God is perfect and holy and you are not. You're broken and you're sinful. Sin can't be in the presence of a holy God, and yet God made a way to remedy that problem, which is why he sent his son, a perfect lamb of God, a sinful sacrifice to go to the cross on your behalf. And yet all that Jesus did on the cross and from the grave is only applied to you when you choose to follow him and believe in him and turn away from your sin. Will you do that this morning? If you're not a Christian and God wants you to follow him, I'm gonna be down here at the front If you want to come and talk to someone about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Maybe God's speaking to you about baptism. We're going to be baptizing the next two Sundays in our service. Man, this is a moment in which you can step forward and say, I want to be baptized and be baptized with others, new believers, some who've been believers for some time and want to be baptized. What God wants to do in your life if you've never been baptized or join our church. Whatever God's saying to you, let me pray for us. And we're going to stand and sing this morning. God, we do love you and thank you for the time that we have in your word. We pray this morning that you would, Lord, speak to us, but give us courage to say yes to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us and let's sing this song together and have the courage to come and respond to the Lord. Deep the Father's love for us. Beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss! The father turns his face away as wounds which by the chosen one bring many sons to. I know.